You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. We're starting a new series of sermons this morning uh, through this Old Testament book. It is right before, uh, right after Ezra, um, right before Esther, if that helps at all in finding it. Um, but this is a book, if you, if you know much about it, it is about, really at the core of it, it's about building a wall, uh, about building a wall around ancient Jerusalem uh, to protect that city. Uh, and I, I've resisted jokes about build that wall and make Jerusalem great again and those types of things. But uh, it is about building of a wall in this ancient city of Jerusalem. Uh, and I have, I think, even from here several times acknowledged before my absolute inability and lack of skill when it comes to handyman type of things or building things. I am the last person that you want to be helping in building anything as long as it's not something very tiny. Uh, and so it's ironic to me as we're launching into this book that really captures this story of building an entire wall around an entire city uh, that I know nothing about actual building. Uh, but one thing that I do know and that we're going to talk about today as we start this book, appropriately, appropriate so, is the importance of a good foundation when you're building anything that's of any size at all, whether it's a house or a church building, uh, something like that. Uh, the importance of having a good foundation. I drive on Center Street uh, every day and coming to church uh, from my house. And even just this week, I was reminded of that visually, right near Owens, if you know where that is, there's been construction going on uh, by this realtor's business. I don't even know what it's for, but they've been having this huge uh, scoop, like digging down deep, deep into the ground, and then they've had concrete mixers coming in and pouring a foundation and a wall. Uh, they've been digging deep down into the ground and working for hours and I think weeks now, tons of hours and time given, to build, to build a foundation that within probably a couple months is never going to be hardly seen by anyone. Uh, that, that once it's, it's built, once that structure is built and the dirt is put back around it, nobody's going to see it. But the importance of it will still be there. The vital, the vitality of having uh, a solid foundation is still going to be true. And if you've bought homes before or just been around long enough, uh, you've learned, as I have, that there can be opposite tensions that happen with a building and its foundation. Sometimes there is a wonderfully beautiful building or a house that just looks spectacular, that's kept up well, um, but there's a terrible foundation underneath it, one that is fracturing, that's breaking, that is making the whole structure unstable. But there's also the opposite problem at times, that sometimes the foundation is steady as can be. It's not going anywhere, it's not budged at all, and just the house after time, the building after time, has started to deteriorate. And uh, there's this, this weird difference sometimes of what's above ground and what's below ground. Sometimes one is good and the other's not. Uh, sometimes it's the opposite. And I, I think the same is true in our lives as individuals or as collective groups of people, whether it's in churches or societies, families, life groups. Um, that at times what people see can seem really strong and great and wonderful, but there's a deteriorating foundation underneath it. But what we're going to see in Nehemiah uh, is, is, that, is that this is true, that there's this 
crumbling, literally, of walls and of buildings and destruction of a city, but there is this strength of a foundation that's underneath it all. There's, there's a strength of God's promises that are foundational, that are going to keep God's people steady, that are going to give them hope for the future. Even as everything around them, above ground, the visible things have been torn down, their, their life has been put into shambles, we're going to see that the underneath it, there are the promises of God that are stabilizing them, that are giving them solidness, solidity, as uh, as a group of people, as God's people. And so today we're going to look at just a small section right at the very beginning of this book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at just three verses uh, because some of what we're going to do this morning is just lay a groundwork of what even this story is about, the backstory of it, what's going on. But I also want us to see some things that are relevant for us right out of the gate, things that we need to know about the foundation that God has laid in our lives as individuals, the foundation that God has laid in our life as a church, because uh, we will be tempted at different points in time. Some of you may be feeling this even today or in this season of life. We're going to be tempted to feel, or maybe sometimes it's actually happening, that the structures of our lives feel like they're falling. Uh, It might not be to a point of despair, but things just feel like they're falling apart. And it's important for us in those seasons to know to look to the foundation, to look to the things that are bedrock, that do not move, Uh, when we are in those difficult times. So uh, before we read this, I wanted to just make sure we understand where we are in the whole story of the Bible as we open up to the book of Nehemiah, because I'm guessing you maybe have read this before, maybe you haven't, but most of us probably aren't incredibly familiar with it. And I want, so I wanted to share a little bit of the backstory of it so we know what we're entering into. Um, Dr. Matt Harmon has come out, and we have a slide that has these four words on here. Who, he's a member of our church, preaches here. I think he's here somewhere, but I, I gave him, uh, I told him I'd give him credit for these things. He's come up with four words that kind of help us understand in a quick way some of what's going on in the Old Testament. This is in the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus would ever come. And he's crystallized not the entire of entirety of the Old Testament, but boiled it down a bit into four words that I think are really helpful of things God was promising or working, bringing about during these Old Testament times. And the first one is temple. This is something that God, the temple was the building in Jerusalem, the capital city, that God told his people to build. He told them how to build it, where to build it. It was a place where God had them build so he could live among them permanently semi-permanently, where he could take up residence inside this building in the middle of their city. It was a, a, it's hard to explain the importance of that building for God's people. It was right in the heart of their, their main city, and it was more importantly the place that God dwelled with them, in that holy of holies, in that place. Uh, but another promise that God had given them, and a, a gift that he had given to them, we could call the Torah. That's the word for law. It's the Hebrew word for law. It, it was the story of God's people, of how God had rescued them uh, out of slavery in Egypt. But it was also God giving commands to them, him telling them how they were supposed to live. And so God's people in the Old Testament were supposed to be reading that and knowing it and remembering the story of how God had saved them and knowing how God was calling them to live. So they were to be a people of the book, of the law. They were supposed to know those things. The third thing uh, that Dr. Harmon called turf is this promise that you see in the Old Testament that God gave his people that he was going to give them a land to live on, land to live in. We call it the promised land because it was land God promised them and miraculously gave to them that was called Canaan that they lived in for generation upon generation. 
And the last one, the last T, is throne. And this is the, the promises that God and, and the provision of God of giving them kings as God's people. Uh, that, that he was giving them kings who could rule over them and provide for them and protect them. Uh, hopefully give them even some guidance and leadership spiritually and physically, politically even, uh, as a people. And so these are things that are a quick summary of things that God was saying he was going to do, things God was providing for them. A temple, the Torah, turf to live on, and a king who would be on the throne. But what we see happen prior to Nehemiah in the Old Testament is that things went south. Things went really bad over time with regard to... Can we keep those things up for just a minute, John? Sorry. Uh, with regard to each of those things, things kind of turned south. They, they went sideways. We saw, we see, for example, that the second one, the law, the Torah, God's people slowly stopped reading, slowly stopped following, slowly stopped believing, and they, they became increasingly disobedient to God's people. And after a long and patient time, if you think of that third line, turf, God eventually had foreign powers, foreign kings come and overpower God's people. It it was a slow process. It it spanned even uh, a few hundred years. Uh, But God slowly had these foreign powers come into their land, into their turf as God's people, and expel them, send them into exile, into these places they had never been, did not want to go. God brought discipline upon them. And even in thinking of the top line, the temple, the very the place God in Jerusalem was dwelling with his people, God, as those uh, foreign rulers from Babylon came and took over, uh, he even had them destroy the temple to physically tear it down, to, to, to tear it down to the ground. And so uh, at the end of the story, leading up to Nehemiah, we even see with that last line, the throne, that God's people are supposed to have a king upon that throne in Jerusalem. That was no more. Uh, there, were, there was no physical throne anymore. If anybody was ruling over them, it was these foreign kings, these foreign rulers. But what we see coming into the story of Nehemiah, and we're going to get to see uh, a fuller picture of this over the summer, is God slowly starting eventually, after a few generations of being in exile, God slowly starts to let his people come back. He slowly starts to orchestrate things, even with these foreign, powerful kings. He starts to orchestrate things to let them come back and to slowly start to rebuild some of these things, the the temple, and to to find the law, the Torah again, and to start to have some turf given back to them. And so we'll share a little bit more on that later. But what we're going to pick up now with Nehemiah, these first few verses, we're going to see this main character, Nehemiah, who essentially writes most of this book we're going to go through this summer in the first person. He's going to tell his account of what happened, how God used him uh, to bring about some of that reconstruction, that rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. And we're going to see uh, in this first chapter, we'll see it more next week, but Nehemiah is a guy of a man of prominence, even in a foreign land, even under foreign kings, uh, under this Persian king now named Artaxerxes. He's risen to a place of prominence. He's what's called the cupbearer. He would have been very trusted, would have been near to the king, trusted by him to do simple things like testing the wine to make sure it wasn't poison, but also to give some counsel, to, to hear ideas, to be right there with him at many times. And Nehemiah is about to hear some very bad news about this rebuilding project that's started, that's been started, that's slowly building steam. Nehemiah is going to hear some very bad news about this rebuilding project that's happening 
in Jerusalem. And so I'm going to read this, the first three verses, and then we'll uh, share some thoughts uh, to walk through this together. But follow along with me in the book of Nehemiah. This is the very start of it, the first three verses. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Judah's the area where Jerusalem would have been. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So this is a very short, very simple introduction uh, to this story. We see right out of the gate, it's the words of Nehemiah. We're getting some of the setting of it. And how I would summarize even just this initial uh, statement of Nehemiah, this introduction, and what I would want to convey to us today is this, and we'll, we'll walk back through this, is that even when God's people are vulnerable, God's promises are secure. That even when God's people are vulnerable, as Nehemiah's uh, fellow countrymen, the Israelites were, even when God's people are vulnerable, God's promises are secure. And so I first want us to think about the vulnerability that Nehemiah is hearing about. What is, actually, what is the news that's coming to him uh, that he is hearing about and the vulnerability of God's people in Jerusalem at this time? And I, I want us to think about our own lives as well, the vulnerability that we are going to face, that we're going to experience as God's people in 2018. And I, I would say this this way, is to expect to experience vulnerability. Expect it. Expect to experience vulnerability, even as one of God's people. And so what is happening here, what this news is, we, we find Nehemiah, this man who's been, we don't know exactly how or why or a lot of his origins, but he's come to a place of prominence uh, with the Persians, with these new kings who had even taken over the kings who had conquered Jerusalem. There's these new people in power, the Persians. And he's risen to a place of prominence. And this is happening in the, in the uh, month of Chislev. We don't have that month, but we even saw this in the book of John a couple weeks ago uh, with, uh, it's when we were talking about Hanukkah and the Feast of Dedication. This is a month in their calendar that happened around like November, December. And so this would have been winter time, and he's in the city of Susa. Uh, which uh, some translate this the capital or the citadel. This was a place that in the winter, the Persian kings, whoever it was at the time, would go to this city. And that would be the place that they lived and ruled from, typically during the winter time. And so he's there with the king. We find out later that it's Artaxerxes, uh, this king that we see in other parts of the Bible. But he's there in this place of prominence, this place of security, in this citadel, this, this very calm, very secure place. And he has these messengers come to him. Uh, he even calls one of them one of my brothers, Hanani, uh, who is mentioned later and may very well have been one of his literal biological brothers. Uh, but these men have been in the region of Judah, the, the southern part of that promised land that God's people had been in, the place where Jerusalem was. And they come and they bring uh, this news, and Nehemiah inquires about it, right? He, he says, I asked them 
concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So on Nehemiah's heart is, I want to know how my brothers and sisters are doing. I want to know, even though they're far away, even though I'm in a secure place, in a comfortable place, a place of power and prominence and ease, I care about them. I want to know what's going on with them. Tell me how it's going. How is the, how is the city? Because he knows they've been rebuilding. He knows they've been, uh, that the temple's been reconstructed. He knows uh, prior to this that, that there's been the law starting to be followed again. And so hopefully he's expecting, I think, good news from them. That, hey, things are continuing to improve. Things, the wall is even being built and secured around the city, which would have been a very, very important thing in the ancient world to have a secure wall around their city. But what he hears is the opposite of that. What they tell him in verse 3 is that the remnant there in the province that survived the exile, so that there's this group of people that are still there, he says, the, the messenger says that they are in great trouble and shame. He says that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And what they're relaying is not what happened long ago, generations ago, when Jerusalem first got taken over. Nehemiah knew about that. He would have known about that a long time ago. What they are talking about is this rebuilding project that was going on even in Nehemiah's day. That that there had been some momentum being built and some steam ahead. And they, they are telling him even that has gone south. Even that has gone sideways. The walls that they were starting to rebuild are are being torn down again. The gates that they were starting to try to to restore and secure again, those are being burned. And so Nehemiah is torn up about this. And we'll see it in his prayer next week. His heart is heavy. He he cannot bear to hear this, that that his fellow countrymen, his uh, Israelite brothers and sisters are in trouble and in shame. The enemies around them, there around Jerusalem, are threatening them and stopping their work. They're halting it. And Nehemiah can't bear to st- he can't stand this to hear it. And it's hard for us to put our, our minds, put ourselves in the, the shoes of Nehemiah to understand what that would have been like. We don't have a city like Jerusalem. We don't have a temple where God dwells. We don't have a capital city in the same way that they did where God lives. Where, where God's kings were supposed to live. And so they, they had once had this prominent, beautiful city, this beautiful temple where God had dwelled with his people for generation upon generation. And then God had let them, because of their disobedience, he had let them be sent into exile. He had let them be uh, torn apart as a city, as a land, sent into exile and he seems like he's moving, he's starting to, to rebuild, let them come back into the land, letting them rebuild. And then even that gets thwarted. That they, they have maybe this hope and anticipation, maybe we're getting back to our glory days, maybe we're, God's letting us return. And what they experience instead is more trouble and more shame. There's, there's enemies that are keeping them from doing these things and they feel weak. They can't overcome these enemies when they're threatening them and burning down their gates. They can't stop them. They feel powerless, probably discouraged, probably confused. Like, what are you doing, God? Like, it seemed like you're orchestrating and moving these things back to give us strength again. And now you're throwing a wrench in it. You're letting our enemies come against us again. You're letting them tear us down again. 
And it's hard for us to put ourselves in those shoes, but I, I want us to try to understand the heartbreak that would have been there for these people who had returned to Jerusalem and the heartbreak that would have maybe come to Nehemiah as he hears this bad news about walls being torn down again. And I want us to, to think about the relevance of this for us. Um, we, this is an ancient story about a wall around a city that most of us will never go to. Uh, it's a foreign land, a foreign world to us. But there are things I, th- I think that we ought to learn, and as I stated already, that we should learn as God's people to expect to experience vulnerability. Like God's people never have been and never will be until Jesus comes back someday immune to being vulnerable, to feeling our weakness, to having enemies or challenges that come against us, very real, strong enemies and challenges that come against us. This this is an exhibit A of God. He he favors these people. He's made promises to these people. He's been bending history in certain ways to bring them back into this city and to restore it. But even in the midst of that, he lets vulnerability sit upon them. He lets them feel and remember their weakness. He lets them to, to see with their own eyes some of what happened to their ancestors as Jerusalem was torn down. He, he lets them feel the weight of that, the, the, the heartbreak of that, the powerlessness of that as God's people. Even who have the God of the universe on their side, he lets them feel and experience trouble. And even shame and feel weakness uh, and inability to overcome the opposition that comes. And we as God's people are no different today. Now, there, there are better promises that God's given us, which we'll talk about in a moment. But we are always, till the day that we die, until the day that Christ returns, we are always going to experience different levels of vulnerability ourselves. That God is not going to create these pristine lives for us as individuals or families, as a church, as a collective church around the world. He's not just going to let things be easy for us. And to remove obstacles and to any time there's challenge against us to just poof, make it go away. Like God intentionally at times brings people, brings situations, brings sufferings into our life, allows them to come into our lives to teach us to our own weakness, to teach us our smallness and his bigness, to, to teach us our powerlessness and his power, that God lets us and even wants us in certain ways to feel vulnerable at times. So he's going to allow things in our lives as individuals. He's going to let us, every single one of us at some point, have our health deteriorate, for example. Our bodies, we have immune systems, but they, and they are wonderful, a gift of God, but someday, some way, your body is going to deteriorate. You are going to have vulnerabilities that no medicine can overcome, that no doctor can cure. There's going to be, as individuals, there's going to be vulnerabilities that we feel in our relationships, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our families, In our work relationship, there's going to be people who threaten us in a sense. There's going to be people who challenge us, who harm us with their words, who who undermine us. There's going to be brokenness that we feel in our relationships. There's vulnerability that we are going to feel as individuals. And God wants us to be ready for those things. He doesn't want us to see those things as as Pastor Larry preached for us last week as an absence of God or a sign that he doesn't love us. But he wants us to see those experiences of vulnerability in an unusual way as a gift of his for us to remember how small we are and how deeply in need we are of God to work and of his power. 
And we're going to experience vulnerability collectively too. It's not just as individuals that we experience vulnerability. These people experience vulnerability collectively. This whole nation, this whole remnant that had gone into exile, they experience vulnerability together as a group, as a nation. And there are times that we experience vulnerability collectively with the people we're closest to. There are times where our families may feel under attack spiritually or where we have repeated things in our families that are coming against each of us in different ways and we all feel our vulnerability together or economic challenges in our family leave our entire family feeling vulnerable and powerless. Even churches, I would acknowledge this even today as we have our lead pastor moving. Like we, we have challenges and vulnerabilities that we face as churches. And every church around the world forever will have vulnerabilities that we face as a church. There, there's, there's things that are broken even within the church. And God lets those things happen. He lets us experience a lack. He lets us experience a challenge to teach us that, that we need him. That, that, that we need his plans. We need his power to be put on display among us. And so God wants us to be ready for these things, to experience vulnerability. He wants us to expect it, to anticipate it, to be ready for it. I think this surprised Nehemiah when he heard these words. I think as he, as he heard them, he was hoping he would hear good news. Hey, the wall is getting stronger. It's getting built up. Things are, are going great, Nehemiah. But he hears the opposite. And what we're going to see over the course of this book is he doesn't panic. Like he, he anticipated, I think, as a leader, as, as, as the leader God was going to use, he anticipated there was going to be vulnerability. There's going to be, even as he started to be directly involved, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be obstacles that they had to face as God's people in rebuilding this. And so he, I think, in his mind, had a, a stability and a steadiness about him that, that oozed out into the people that, that he led in this rebuilding process. And so... First, he hears bad news, but I want to I want to back up in the story a little bit and have you turn, if you could, maybe a few pages back or click back in your your app or whatever to the start of Ezra. Uh, just a little bit back. This is the book of the Bible right before Nehemiah, because there's a backstory even that Nehemiah knows as he hears this bad news, as he hears man that vulnerable again, powerless again. There's a backstory that Nehemiah knows. Uh, that he has been witness to either in what he's heard from the generation before him or what he has even seen with his own eyes. And the reason I have you turn back to Ezra, uh, and we're going to look at the first couple verses of Ezra, is because these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, actually originally, as best as we can tell, were one book. They, they were written together, they were put together, and even though Nehemiah is written much more first-person account, Nehemiah telling his story uh, in the rebuilding of the wall, the book of Ezra went with it originally. That, that they, they were uh, copied together, they were written together, they were compiled together, and so they were to be one story that was read uh, with one another. We, we've split them out into two um, but there, there's a backstory here that I want you to see that would have been in Nehemiah's mind and that, that I think can teach us. Because uh, if we are to expect to experience vulnerability, I would say this as well, that we are to find security in God's promises. That's what you see in Ezra chapter 1. Is there's security that comes in God's promises. So look with me at the start of Ezra here. I'll read the first 
four verses of Ezra. That's the start of this whole story. This is a while back in time, uh, even before Nehemiah comes. This is around uh, 538 B.C. So this is uh, almost 100 years before uh, Nehemiah even comes onto the scene. This is going to reference an earlier king of Persia. It says that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, then note this, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So there's this powerful king. He's taken over the Babylonians uh, and their empire. He is this powerful man, but God moves him to, to write this. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. You can kind of hear the pride oozing out of this guy. But then he says this, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And so this is how this story starts. This is way before Nehemiah ever comes on, along. This very first king of Persia, Cyrus, he has this unusual, it would have been unique in his day, a, a, a tact, a strategy as a king who had this really broad empire that he wanted the different cities and the different regions that were now under his rule, instead of saying, our religion is going to be upon all of you, his strategy was, I'm going to let each of these local places have their own religions back, to let them start practicing. Maybe it'll put me kind of in their, their good graces. Maybe they'll like me a little bit better. I'm going to let them uh, do their own religious thing. And so he did things like this. He said, hey, Jewish people, wherever you've been spread out in exile, Go back to Jerusalem. I'm even going to fund it. I'm going to make people around you help you. He's trying to like endear himself to these people so they like him. But God is the one moving the hand of Cyrus to write this. God is the one who is motivating Cyrus to do this. So God's purposes come about. I, I would note here in Ezra, look at this. I, I tried to highlight it even in how I read it. Look at verse 1. A couple of things there. It says... In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This stuff starts to happen. These aren't just historical events that happen in a vacuum. Uh, it is that the word of the Lord, the promises that God had made even before this uh, to his people, God was going to see that they came about. And what he's referring to, I believe, is a passage from Jeremiah, chapter 29. You could read it later if you'd like to, verses 10 and 15, or 10 through 15, where God had said, hey, there's going to be this period of 70 years where you're going to be in exile, people, and my people. But he says, I'm going to visit you. And he says, that's the famous part where he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And he starts to say things like, you'll seek me and find me. 
And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes. And he had promised this. And gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. And I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God had promised that. God had told his people that, hey, I'm sending you into exile, but I'm going to gather you back again. I'm going to have you return to this land. I am going to do that. That was the word of the Lord, the promise that had been made. And so as time rolls on and this man Cyrus now becomes king, he's making this, this, uh, this statement, hey, Jewish people, you can go back to Jerusalem. I, I want you to rebuild the temple. I want you to, to start following your law again. But it is that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. And though even in verse 1 of Ezra 1 again, it says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation that way. So God is the one underneath and behind these historical events driving it forwards. And because he's already made these promises, he, he has laid down these promises, I am going to have you return. I am going to have you come back to Jerusalem. I'm going to restore you to that place. And the, the, the enemies of God, the Babylonians who had come to Jerusalem, for example, they could tear down the, the city walls. They could tear down and burn down the temple. They could take all the gold out of it that they want. They could burn the, the law of God's people. They could do whatever they want. They could lay down any threat that they wanted and harm God's people even. And they did, but they could not touch the invisible foundation that God had laid of his promises. They could tear down that whole nation. They could raise it, R-A-Z-E, to the ground and destroy all of it. But they could not get into that unseen level of God's promises. Because if God says, I will do something, guess what? He is going to do it. And I don't care if Satan himself lines up every demon, every human being on the face of the earth against the plans of God. If God says he will do something, if he, by his word, says, I will fill in the blank, that is going to happen. And Nehemiah knew this. He knew that these events that even had predated him, of how the, the wall had started, or the, the temple had been rebuilt, you read about in Ezra. And the law had started to get followed again, you read about in Ezra, Nehemiah knew that this was God fulfilling the promises that he made. And so when he's sitting in Susa that winter and that those messengers come to him and say, hey, those walls that we were building, they're being torn down again. Like Nehemiah is grief, uh, grief stricken. He's grieved by this. But he knew the promises of God. He knew that God had said, I will bring you back. I will restore you. I will restore the city. He knew the promises of God. And we as God's people today ought to be people who, just like Nehemiah is going to demonstrate through this book, who we put our hope and put our trust in the promises of God. When we feel vulnerable, when we have hardships come upon us, we have promises that are better than Jerusalem. Promises that are better than a wall being built. Promises that are better than the ones even Jeremiah had given to the Israelites. We have promises that blow those out of the water. Because when we get to, by the end, when we get to the end of Nehemiah, at the end of the summer, those four T's that I, I showed you, are there still up there? Sweet, I'm not even paying attention. All right, those, the, those top three are going to be good again. 
by and large, uh, that, the, that the temple is going to be rebuilt. Uh, it already is rebuilt even before Nehemiah. But the law is being followed to some degree. There's challenges that we'll see even at the end of the book. But they're back in the land, and more and more people are coming back. There's security that's growing because they complete this wall miraculously, I think, in like 52 days around the entire city of Jerusalem. We'll see. But guess what? That last one was no different. There was no Israelite king in Jerusalem at the end of Nehemiah. There were still Persian kings who were ruling over them. And, and even at the end of Nehemiah, we're going to be compelled to look ahead past Nehemiah and see that, that there was uh, more that needed to come, more promises that needed to come uh, that God has now given to us. And these promises come true in Jesus. God makes promises to us through Jesus. He, he has sent the Son of God into our world to die for us and be raised for us, to die for our sins and be raised for, for us so that we might share an eternal life. And he tells us if we have put our trust in Christ, if we've turned our life to him, these are some of the promises that God would want you to remember are the foundation upon which you're being built and our church is being built. He makes promises to us like this, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. He promises this, us this. Whoever, Jesus himself said this. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John six thirty seven. He promises us this. He says, I will put my spirit within you. Ezekiel thirty-seven fourteen. He says, Jesus himself said this, a promise that I bank on with, with my whole soul and being. He says, I will come again. John 14, 3. And he says this. He says, even as we think of death and our ultimate vulnerability, he says, Jesus said, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Those are promises that God gives to us uh, that, that we can bank on when we feel our life feeling like it's crumbling or seeing that it has crumbled around us. We have promises like that to put our hope and to put our confidence in as the groundwork and the foundation that's laid beneath us. And we picked Nehemiah to go through this summer on purpose uh, because there, there's this picturesque imagery of building together, uh, of, of working together, sacrificing together as God's people to, to do great things for God, to accomplish significant things for God. But we want to remember today as we talk about that this summer and think how do we need to continue and even strengthen working together as a church and helping build what he's already been doing here we want to remember that every work that we do as a church, whether individuals or collectively, is building on a foundation that's already been laid. We're not starting new things. When CCC started uh, decades ago, it wasn't just building from nothing. It was building upon a foundation that was already laid of the work of Jesus that will never change, that will never be shaken, that will never break. There's a foundation that has been laid for us in the coming of Jesus and his death and his resurrection for us. And we're going to see valuable things as we go through Nehemiah. We're going to see things like the importance of godly and wise leadership. We're going to see next week even the power of prayer individually and collectively. We're going to see the importance of 
honestly assessing weak spots and vulnerabilities like Nehemiah does with the wall around Jerusalem. We're going to see the necessity of cooperating together and every person doing their part uh, in the work of God. We're going to see the reality of opposition uh, to God's work and, and that we can anticipate even ourselves. We're going to see the priority of God's word as God's people, that as we work and as we build together, the priority of his word. We're going to see the need to confess sin. We're going to see by the end of Nehemiah the beauty of celebrating completed work, uh, things that have been done. And we're going to see the need for ever, uh, ever reforming work, that we're constantly in need of change, in need of improvement. As God's people. But as we see all these ways that we can work together this summer. And that God calls us to work together. We always need to remember that, that under our work. Under the things that we're seeking to build and construct. Is the work of God. The foundation that he has laid for us. in sending Christ. And having him die and be raised for us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3. He said. According. Talking about his own ministry. He said. According to the grace of God given to me. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Our church, we are at a pivotal season, I think, in the the months and years ahead. We are at a really pivotal season. Every church is, as they have a lead pastor move on. I, I believe we're at a pivotal time as a church and we are called and we're going to see practical ways even through nehemiah we're called to work together to to build for the sake of god's kingdom together and continue the work that's begun and there's going to be challenges that we face that we're already facing there's going to be vulnerabilities that we have already as a church or new ones that come up in time those things will always be reality but as we face challenges we can also have confidence can't we because there's this great promise that I've thought about much this week uh, that I held off till now to share. But in Matthew 16, 18, and you all, most of you know this, Jesus said this. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that is true worldwide. That is true with local churches that Jesus is with us and for us and has been for decades, has been for millennia. But he is with us and for us. He's going to be with us and guide us as a church. And I think there's a lot of exciting days ahead, but there's, there will always be and are right now hard things and vulnerabilities that we experience. But as we sense those things and feel those things, it's tempting to look at the issues. It's tempting to look at the vulnerabilities we feel in life. When we're tempted to look at those problems, I, I would encourage us first, uh, even before we look to how do we fix this? How do we change this? How do we do this and this and this? To first make sure we look at the foundation and remember what we're building on. And remember, it is as secure as secure can be. It's the foundation of Jesus Christ that's been laid in our church. And we get the privilege and honor uh, to build a